All right, Justin, sing me a song about waking up one day and having everything taken from you in your life and everybody acting like they have no idea who you are or they hate you and you just lose everything only to be saved by Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> wow. I like how you threw that curveball in there. Uh, saved by Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh uh, it was a little too easy if it wasn't that. I have to, I have to up the ante since you both <laughs> yeah, got a win in the last episode. I have to up the ante. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. Uh, there goes my hero. Watch him as he goes. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Just replace that with a she. There. You know what? I Jamie like that one. I like it. That wasn't what I was thinking, but I like it. You do get a win, Justin. Oh, boom. I do like that. That was a good twist. All right, Heather, your turn. Oh, no. The only song I can think of, and I know like three words of it, is I who have nothing. That's all I know. Nope. I was actually looking for So You Had a Bad Day. (laughs) Ah. I feel like Justin has used that in a different one before. I think he has. But that was a loss then. That was a win for this one. Wow, Justin. Surprisingly, you get a win, and Heather keeps her tradition slightly up and takes a loss. I feel like mine was still a good one. Nope, because I don't even know what fucking song you were singing. No idea. Justin, do you know that song? I don't know any other words, but I know it is a song. It's called I Who Have Nothing. <laughs> Man, I don't... I'm. I'd, you'd have to sing more of it. That sounds like, like some of that church it. song bullshit. What'd you say? That sounds like some of that church song bullshit. <laughs> no, it's like, like an R and B song. You find that in some like new age <laughs> church with an electric drum kit and a bunch of oh white my. people standing on the stage right after they sing that song about playing football in Jesus's big backyard or some shit. Oh my goodness. Dang. No, it that is. That was very specific and descriptive. Yeah, because it names every white church ever, like since 2000. It does include mine, but that's okay. See? It is a song by Tom Jones. Boom. Isn't that the motherfucker that sings Donka Shane? Which is like the wrong way to say it, but yes. No, that's Wayne Newton. Ah, see? Fuck Tom Jones then. Oh, okay. What does he sing? I'm just saying. It's a real song. Tom Jones sings that, um... It's that song in Fresh Prince that Carlton always sings, and I can't remember it. It's not unusual? Yes. Hmm. Yep. Oh, you know what? I do like that guy. He's in Mars Attacks. Oh, is he? <laughs> yeah, he's one of the guys in Vegas that they save the, when they get in the plane, and he takes them to like the desert area to be safe. Hmm. I forgot about that. Yeah. So. Never mind, Tom Jones. I'm sorry I said disparaging things against you, but Heather still takes a loss. <laughs> uh, I tried. I tried, Tom Jones. See, I know how to admit the error of my ways. It's just it doesn't happen much because I rarely fuck up. Here's the intro. <laughs> Lies. Lies. 
how dare you say I'm lying? Hey guys, welcome to another. Oh fuck, I can't even do the intro now because I fucked up. I should have said my shit first, but I didn't. So let's try that again. Hey, Sin fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Sin Slayers podcast. I'm Sterling, the ever truth telling person, and I'm joined by Heather the Liar and Justin. Wow. And today, wow. And today, we're going to be talking about a movie that is off my essentials list with the movie Trading Places, which is also my favorite Christmas movie. Fuck whatever you say. It's a Christmas movie because I also watch it every year at Christmas. So I don't care if it is a Christmas movie to anybody else. It is to me, damn it. And that's all that matters. So we will talk about what we like, didn't like, and everything in between with that movie. And we are actually going to start off with Heather, because since it's my movie, I want to go last. Okay. Well, this was my first time seeing the entire movie. I had definitely seen parts of it before, but I saw the whole thing for the first time. So, yeah, it is. I actually think it is a it's a really clever idea for a movie. Um, Just. It's just entertaining, you know, the idea of it and, you know, two guys who have very different lives switching places, which isn't anything, you know, we haven't seen before. But this was more, you know, this was back in the 80s. And so it was a little bit more of an original idea at the time. And um, yeah, so I, I think it was entertaining. And I tried to kind of be in the mindset of you know, thinking, thinking of it back as if it was a newer movie in the sense, like not trying to think of, oh, but they did that better in this and this and this, because, you know, it was a more original one of those. So yeah, I, I think that it was entertaining. I think the cast of people was really good. Um, Dan Aykroyd in this is really good. It's a very, um, Dan Aykroyd vehicle, if you will, <laughs> this movie. Um, Eddie Murphy is good. He's actually the, the way that he played characters, I know we'll get into, but that was, um, something of note for me. And Jamie Lee Curtis, I kind of love her anyway. So I think she was great in this. <laughs> um, at this might have been one of her first movies. I'm not sure, but anyways, um, but yeah, the, the storyline itself, was entertaining enough. Um, you know, they were able to kind of round out the types of things that they were learning when they're, when Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd kind of switched, you know, how their lives were going and, and they were able to really kind of round it out with detail. It wasn't just kind of like a, you know, you just feel like they actually had backstory even when they had switched their places. So I, I thought it was really, it was really good. It was pretty well done. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of those where there it's it's not a super complicated story in any sort of way, but it was just entertaining to just kind of see how these two leads um kind of behaved and how they kind of took on the things that happened and um just in general seeing their their change in the way that they've handled situations and all of that and it was it was good. Um there's definitely things about it that <laughs> especially nowadays like I couldn't just keep it in the past because of how not appropriate some of the stuff was that they did in this movie is but um trying to look past that a little bit and just getting to the story part of it it was 
uh, pretty well done story. So that's my take. Justin, what about you? Okay, so with this movie, um, and this uh, too, kind of like Heather, was the first time that I'd seen this movie. So uh, this, so I'm just kind of fresh out of the box with this one. I had always heard of this, but this had just been kind of one of those that I had missed. And over the years, especially when Eddie Murphy was... Uh, at that point in his career where he was just all the rage, it just seems like he would always kind of do these kind of team up movies like this where, you know, you would see him with Nick Nolte or you would see him with another star. Like he's got a lot of kind of odd couple type of movies like this. And I, and, but this is one of those that I just didn't really see. And, um, and after watching this, I do think that this is probably one of the better roles I've seen him do, actually, especially just from that that material in the 80s. And him and Dan Aykroyd, which I mean, I think it's pretty common knowledge by now that they're both um, successful comedians, actors, things like that. And in this movie, I think that this is one of those movies where you really get to see them at the peak of their powers. Like this is Eddie Murphy. Uh, this is pretty much Eddie Murphy funny, uh, charming, compelling, but the 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 high voice and the quick speaking like like this is classic Eddie Murphy stuff. And then you've got Dan Aykroyd, and of course he's funny and he's got away with situational humor and things like that. And the director gives them plenty of room to be able to do that. And I really think that that is why the movie shines. It's just because those two comedians get to do their thing and the, and the director doesn't step on that. And the story is simple, but what it does allow them to do is just, it allows those two guys to be them. It allows them plenty of scenes to be able to get, get, get over their unique styles of humor respectively and it does that well and then when the movie then starts to put them together I think that's where you have a lot of gold like that last half of the movie where you get to kind of see them separate but then it puts them together as we head to the final act I think that that's where like a lot of the gold comes from wish there could have been more of that now looking back on it but what we got was good enough for what this story was and they they weren't the only good performances in this i really liked jamie lee curtis in this i uh really liked her in this. I thought that she definitely shined in this, in the scenes that she had. She had a screen presence with her and Dan Aykroyd, and, you know, she she really showed up in this. I, I thought that she really stood out. I mean, definitely Aykroyd and Murphy carry this movie, but she was a very nice piece to this. She was a nice change of pace. The, the, the way that the character was and how she interacted and how she meshed with them – 
that just wound up being like the extra cherry on top of the pie. So I thought that Jamie Lee Curtis was also very good here. And kind of like what Heather said, the story is a simple one. And we've seen kind of like these Freaky Friday-ish type of situational type movies where you have these two people that are uh, unlike each other and they switch places and there's a scenario about that and there are lessons learned and things like that. So you, you, this plot is very simple. But what I think makes this one of those movies that stands out in people's minds and what really uh, is the crux of the movie is just the performances. And I do feel that they are worth the price of admission. I am flummoxed by the fact that neither one of you had seen this movie, like really, really seen it until now. I know I'm ashamed. (laughs) I mean, like I said, this is my go-to Christmas movie every year. And I mean, it has been for so long. Uh, I mean, I can't even tell you when the first time I watched this movie was like, this was so long ago that I had seen this. And at like an inappropriate age too for what this movie is. But I was a child when I first saw this movie. And yeah, like I said, it just blows my mind that you guys never saw it. I mean, especially when you like go and you look through everything. I mean, this was Eddie Murphy's like second or third movie. Um Heather like Jamie Lee Curtis had done like nine or ten movies before this, but none of them were comedies really. Like looking some of them I have no idea what they are because I've never seen them before. But a lot of it's like the yeah, Halloween, Halloween of- two. Yeah, uh, those were the only ones I could think of. Yeah, but she had also done prom night, and she had done she had done a lot of horror stuff, or like you know stuff like that. Uh, this was like a, her first actual like comedic role, or role in a comedic movie. Um, and it's just one of those movies, though, for me that like you know, like Justin was saying, I I really like I I like the amount of time that they spent separate and together because I think like them it allowed them to both build their characters individually mm-hmm. and then to build that dynamic between them. Like, I really like the story arc of Dan Aykroyd's character in this movie from like that rich entitled yuppie character into somebody that is just like nonplus with so much. Like, I love the fact that at the beginning of the movie, the idea that, Dan Aykroyd's character would, you know, even be friends with a sex worker is just unfathomable. Or yeah. just the fact that he'd be friends with anybody like Dan Aykroyd, or I mean, like Eddie Murphy, honestly, that he would be friends with a black person. Like just the way, you know, everything is presented in this with that very early 80s racism with a lot of stuff that I just really liked how they were able to build those dynamics and build those characters. Like I also individually love Eddie Murphy's character story arc, you know, going from like essentially the streetwise, you know, peddler, you know, to then experiencing having money. And then like, you know, advice, like all this stuff. Like, I like how they both individually took those turns. And like with what you guys were saying with like body swap movies, essentially, I like that this is, in a lot of ways, it plays out kind of like a body swap movie. But I like the fact that they're they're not actually body swapping. There's no magic. There's no stupid little thing. 
that they have to like stay like they are until they learn a lesson bullshit. Like <laughs> they're just, you know, they're just swapped <laughs> and it's them because that's what I like too. That like the dynamics of how Eddie Murphy feels like he has to act as a black person in that, you know, financial stock trading or commodities trading atmosphere, even though they're like, no, you're the employee and everybody knows who he is. He still feels like he has to act differently to gain that acceptance. Like, I love that there are several times that he almost says the word fucking. And when he's like, you know, when he's talking about what the people are thinking about when it comes to selling with the pork bellies, he's like, and my wife's not going to make love to me. And Mm -hmm. I like it because it's not that they can't say fuck because it's a rated R movie. I like it because that is the choice the character made to not say that to maintain respectability with the people he's talking to. And that constant having to put on that persona to do so or to do like what he thinks he needs to do. He also does it with the butler at one point. He just finds himself correcting himself and not saying the word fuck to just try to give off the aura of that's where he belongs and little things like that. Like, I think it's actually a really special thing, especially when you're looking at it as, like I said, Eddie Murphy's like second or third movie. The only thing he had done before this is 48 hours and like Saturday Night Live and all that shit. But movies, this is his second movie ever made. And honestly, you can't really tell that he was that new going into this. Yeah, I couldn't. I thought I figured that this was a little bit later. So, yeah, I definitely couldn't tell that it was a second movie. Yeah. And as problematic as certain elements of this movie do get within the context of when it was made, it makes a lot more sense that it actually was made with that. Like this was the early 80s. They gave zero fucks about being any sort of politically correct or morally correct or anything. Everybody was high on fucking cocaine. They gave no shits. It was the wild, wild west. And, and it, honestly, it's actually kind of sad that it's not till recently, almost 40 years later, that the idea of, of actors performing in blackface is finally considered taboo at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as, and as problematic as it's seen, is it's the same reason why a lot of people in comedy, especially back then, did things like this, I feel. Like Billy Crystal used to do a Sammy Davis Jr. thing. They would have him put up like put in blackface and he would just be Sammy Davis Jr. It's because a lot of comedic actors, especially from like an SNL or that type of thing in general, you know, people that do a lot of characters, especially impressions or stuff like that, like a Dan Aykroyd and a Billy Crystal and stuff like that. They do it not necessarily out of malice as much as it is to like show off how many characters they could do. And Versatility, that's the, yeah. That's the whole point. It's like, oh, look at these characters I could do. I could do any character you want me to do in a skit, a sketch, you know, little things like that within a movie. Because the scene in which that happens, it very much is kind of following the Saturday Night Live mentality of all the characters in that scene are playing other characters. It's just like you would find in, in SNL, you know, and that's also one of the things that kind of led to a trademark of Eddie Murphy's of playing other characters in his movies. Like there's always a reason for him to like pretend to be someone else in like every movie he does. 
And it's funny that it shows it goes back that far, like to his second movie ever made. But I think that's enough because I think I've also just been thrown in some spoilers. It's very hard for me not to say spoilers with this movie. I've seen it hundreds of times. And that's why it's mind boggling that you guys have seen it once. Uh, so let's go ahead and go. Recommendations and scores. Justin. Uh, do I recommend it? Uh, yeah. I think that if you're um, just looking for a solid comedy movie um, or you follow some of these actors like Eddie Murphy or Dan Aykroyd, I mean, it doesn't hurt anything to see this movie. And I think that with those, especially when you're trying to watch something with those two actors in mind, this is one of the better movies that I've seen them both in, you know, as far as just the acting and then the chemistry together and stuff like that. So if you're down with some Eddie Murphy or some Dan Aykroyd, I think that this is, I think without question, you would enjoy this movie and it's a pretty solid film. And yes, there are some problematic things that Sterling kind of alluded to. And um, we'll talk about, I'm sure more detail in. So it's not a perfect movie by any means. Some things of course don't age well, Uh, but overall it's, it's two comedians really doing what they do best. And then on, and then the cherry on top is Jamie Lee Curtis kind of doing her thing as well and showing, Showing that uh, showing that she could be with two stars like that and still hold her own and make an impact on the film. So overall, uh, I, I liked this more than anything that I didn't like about it. So I, I, I think I can recommend it for those reasons. Um, I'm going to give it. We'll go mm, 80 Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, throwing off her wig. And telling Dan Aykroyd he, he better sleep in the bedroom out of 100. Heather, what about you? Yeah, I think that was a good sentiment that you said, Justin, about um, just like there's things that I liked more than I didn't like about it. Um, yeah, it's it's an amusing story. It's entertaining and it is funny. I mean, you have some really, you know, top notch comedic actors in this movie. and. Yeah, so and the, just the the way they play off of each other, it's a very good dynamic and then like you said Jamie Lee Curtis is really good in this too and um yeah, it's it's just a it's enjoyable. It's it's fun. It's like a I mean, it's weird to say it's lighthearted just because of like <laughs> the kind of things that like they get put through and everything, but it's it's just a you know, it's it's one of those you can put on if you just want a good laugh. You know, um, yeah, it's amusing enough and it it is a good story and it does progress. It doesn't feel like it's lingering too long in places it doesn't need to. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, going too long or not paced well. It is paced pretty well. And yeah, so I I would say it's definitely a um, it's something I would recommend for sure. So I'll say um, my score for this will be I'll give it. Jasmine, what was your score? I already forgot. 80. 80, okay. I think I'm going to give this, uh, I'll give it a, a 73 Ackroyd in a crazy Santa suit out of 100. While this movie does not, or while elements of this movie do not age well, I think this is one of the best examples. If people nowadays want to know like what Dan Aykroyd or Eddie Murphy could bring 
on a comedic level, I think this is one of the movies to watch. This is, I mean, this is the time when people are talking about prime Eddie Murphy. This shows you the beginning of it. I think if you're looking at Dan Aykroyd in his heyday, because this is post Blues Brothers, but pre Ghostbusters. I mean, this is it, you know, and on top of that, this is a John Landis movie. So with what everything he's done with movies and stuff like that, fuck his son, Max Landis. But I like John Landis. So I think that this movie really does have a lot to offer. And I think that some of the things that don't age well, they are at least brief enough to not be a complete, you know, detriment to the movie now. I think for the most part, especially if you know what's coming and when it happens and what happens after it, this movie still can be watchable. So with that, and like I said, still my all-time favorite Christmas movie, and I'm still going to watch it again in a couple of months when it's Christmas time. So that being said, honestly, I'm going to give it 90 Randolph and Mortimer Dukes losing all their money out of 100. Nice. So that being said, holy blackface Batman. That scene does not age, age well at all. Yeah. <laughs> God, it took me by took me off guard. I was like, "What?" <laughs> See, I could I would have told you that was at least something to like watch for if I had known you hadn't seen this movie. I just assumed everybody have seen this movie. I <laughs> like the idea that both of you guys had not seen this movie did not cross my mind at all partially because of how much i've watched it just the idea that other people haven't seen it at least once doesn't cross my mind and i mean with that scene like i said if you look at the scene for what it is that's exactly what it was it's it's 80s sketch comedy billy crystal's done like all of them have done it you know it's it's just it was a very common thing back then just to show like oh look at these characters i can do and that was just Dan Aykroyd's excuse to do blackface and do it be like it be a Jamaican. Like that's a, that's the whole reason why that scene exists is for Dan Aykroyd to play a Jamaican character. I think when it comes to some of the language that's used that doesn't age well, I actually think it still has a place in the movie because I think it's historically accurate to how people in those situations with the way they felt about things would have actually spoke in those circumstances. But the blackface just does not look good. And also, it's not good blackface either. Like, it's like the idea that they're using that as going, hey, this is going to trick this man. This is passable. Yeah. Is mind boggling. <laughs> like, literally, it was only his face. <laughs> like, his well, neck his was not covered. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's the thing is you could like see like the like the sponge marks from the paint. Like, so it's one of those things that. Like, even within the context of the movie, there's huge flaws in it. Like, if you if you literally accept that scene in the movie at face value for them just trying to be in disguises that this guy would not pick up on, if you literally just take it as that, that was still a poor job. Like, that wouldn't trick anybody. And that is, to me, one of the weirder things of it when you look at it from when the movie was made. Because back then, that wasn't considered offensive. Yeah. And I think, honestly, it just kind of makes it worse now. It's like those comedians. 
or not just comedians. It's like those celebrities. They go, oh, what? Who was it? That one. That one actress. That was like, I want to be the crazy eyes character from Orange Is the New Black, and she just kind of rubbed dark instant tanner all over her face i think it was julianne huff i think yeah it reminded me a lot of that yeah like not only is it disrespectful it's also it's lazy i mean it's and to me that honestly to me that adds to the disrespectfulness of it i mean when you're just like oh i look dirty i'm a black person in this costume like that's what it always looks like to me and it away and that makes it worse to me because like that's how i feel like they're acting even when they're like oh i didn't mean any offense but it's just a costume yeah but it's it's that twofoldness to me that just makes it even worse because it's what like that mentality of of it all i don't know just something about it i don't like well obviously there's something about it i don't like but there's more to it but i mean i do have to ask you guys because you've just seen it the one time like fully or whatever to this day, I still don't quite understand how the end of the movie works. Like, I don't know what they did in the, in the commodities trade pits that made them a lot of money and took all their money. I don't exactly <laughs> understand it. I have seen that I scene either. so no, I many that. times. And I'm just like, I don't exactly understand how it works. Like, I understand how the Dukes lost their money, but I don't understand how they got rich in doing that and that's why i'm confused yeah no that's a good question and i don't have an answer because i can't say i do either <laughs> but it's good that you don't have to understand exactly what happened to know what happened you know yeah but at this point with how many times i've watched it i feel like i should understand it like it took me a while to figure out how the dukes lost their like how they lost their money but i st- like i said i don't get how they made money i don't get it and I really, really, this, the, the watch I did for this episode, I paid extra special close attention on that scene. Like I rewound it a couple of times. Like I really tried to figure out what they did to make money. And I still don't know. And now I'm sad that you guys don't know because then that means I'll never know. <laughs> it just was all kind of. That 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 would that must have been such a tough scene to execute because visually you were trying to kind of have it represented and how people were reacting and then it was just chaotic and all these people yelling and people yelling numbers and Eddie and Aykroyd writing down sales and it was just very very chaotic and I get that. The idea is that their prices, like the orange prices were falling. And so that means that people were picking it up for cheap or whatever. But that price was going down and it got all the way down to twenty nine. And I'm not sure if they if Eddie Murphy and Ackroyd had kind of had another company so that when those people were selling, they were somehow picking up the, I'm not sure either. I I don't think it was really made clear how that money translated, how the Duke's money translated to their money. Um, And so you just kind of left with, I was kind of confused by it. And then I was like, well, 
would all of this happen so fast? Like, I mean, that was so quick. Like everything just, everything that happened, that price fell, boom, 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 boom. And now, oh, guess what? You don't have any money. Okay, we're going to need you to uh, foreclose everything. And uh, we're going to need all of your um, assets and everything like that. You're uh, dead broke now. Like in seconds but and I get that it was a movie it was trying to wrap it up it was trying to get to a resolution but I get where you're coming from man it was all kind of confusing and fast but but maybe that was the point it was so quick to so you wouldn't think about it and dissect it you just go along with it you know we'll see so like- if I can if I can interject oh go ahead Sterling well I was just gonna say like I know how the Dukes lost their money because the whole point was they started buying shares when it was a hundred. And with that, they were buying them in huge, huge quantities, like 200 shares at like a hundred dollars, you know? So there's like $20,000 in like, you know, in commodities at the beginning of that scene. And as the price was going up, they were still buying mass quantities, but buying them that low, you know, when they were at 100, whenever they were getting up to 200, you know, so if you had 100 of them, you just made like $10,000 just because the price went up while you were still buying them. But they were buying more than that. They were buying like 200 or 300, like each time that guy was saying it, you know, so they were buying mass and mass, mass quantities. And then so I know whenever they drove the price down, they had bought so much at in between a hundred to two hundred dollars, like a, a, a per like share, essentially. Then when they drove it all the way down to twenty nine, everything they had like so like the thousand they had bought at two hundred, and it was more than that still. But like the thousand they bought at you know two hundred dollars, which would be like two hundred thousand dollars they spent at that moment, was now only worth three hundred dollars. So that would be the $200,000 down to $300 swing on just like theoretically on that. So like, I understand how the Dukes lost their money. I just do not understand how they made their money. Like, did they actually like, had they been buying, I, I could maybe see it if they had bought like frozen orange shoes before, like before they went into the pit that time, like through a broker, if they had bought some beforehand. And so they had a bunch of it they had bought at the $100 price range. And so when it got driven up all the way to 200 then they sold all of it. And then once it got down to 29 again, or like when it started getting low, they started buying it again when it was that low, maybe? So then when the price was like 29 a thing, they then now had a bunch of it. So if it went up to 100 again from that point, then that's like a 70% swing. So if they had like $100,000 or whatever of shares, they had bought at $29 each. When it goes up to 100, like, you know, within the few days when it normalizes again, that's, you know, $70 per, you know, a thing. So that's like $7 million, whatever they'd make. Maybe that's it. I just don't know. But Heather, what were you going to say? Well, just apparently this is something that a lot of people were confused about too because I was just like looking at an article about it and um apparently like you know the Duke brothers they 
like bribe somebody to get them that advanced copy of the government report for the orange crop. And then when Thorpe and Valentine, they find out what they're up to and they manage to steal the crop report before yeah. the Duke brothers yeah, get yeah. it. Yeah. <clears throat> and so they basically, they um, give them a fake report. And so they're well, yeah, no, like, I, I get all that part of it, mm-hmm. but like the actual scene with the trading is what I don't understand. Everything else about it, I get. That's fairly straightforward. It's just that part I don't. Um, let's see. Because so hold on. So the Dukes were. Uh, uh, so my understanding is the report they read essentially would say that the crop was affected by the the harsh winter storms, saying that there'd be less frozen orange juice concentrate, which would drive the price up. So. That's what they were hoping. So they were hoping to buy a bunch. So even if it was two hundred or three hundred dollars a share, whatever, uh, however they calculate that part of it, whatever, it would go up to maybe five or six hundred, and they would have so much of it that it would grow that high. But since the crop report was saying everything was normal, there would be nothing to artificially or there would be no scarcity, so the price wouldn't go up outside of high amounts of buying and there wouldn't be that much buying on just normal crop reports. So that's why everybody was selling at that point because they knew the stocks and whatever, or the commodities they had bought at even 150 or 200 were really only worth like 75 to a hundred because everything was going to be normal. It was going to balance out. So everybody had to sell at that point to get as, as, as you know, to get as much back as they could. Like that part of it, I like I get. It's just the trading part of it is what I don't. Yeah, I mean, and I don't, I don't know how much this does help or not, but um, it just says, you know, the price starts falling when the price hits twenty nine cents. Um, they start agreeing to buy the orange juice in April. Um, in other words, Winthorpe and Valentine have contracts allowing them to buy millions of pounds of orange juice in April for twenty nine cents a pound and sell it for $1.42 a pound. They sold high and bought low. Yeah, but that's so the that's, thing is, how did they sell high? They would have had to have had some, like they would have had to have had some going into that then. Yeah, so that's what it was. They had to have bought some before they went in that day, knowing that that was the day that was going to cause the fluctuations. So they would have had to have bought some before then, and then sold them when it was high, and rebought when it was low. That's the only way that makes sense. And it's good to know that that's 29 cents. So they were buying them at a dollar a pound and then $2 a pound. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Now it makes more sense to me. Thanks, Heather, for that. Because that that does put it into perspective a little bit more. And also, because I've always seen that it said April, and I never understood that because I know that scene takes place like January 3rd or whatever. So I also, I guess that yeah. makes sense that they're pre-buying it. Okay. Yeah. And like, cause he says, um, what does he say? Sell 30 April at 142 or something is what he says. And then, um, he wants to promise to sell orange juice in April for 142 per pound. The 30 in his line means he wants to start by selling 30 contracts. I don't know if this helps you, but that's what that means. Mm. Um, See, it's hard to I'm understand to it, it, but. Again. Yeah, but it just means they're selling a lot of contracts, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So that's what they're saying is, oh, so when he sells, yeah, but I've never understood the whole whenever he says like 
yeah, sell at 142 or whatever. Like that part of it, I never understood. So that's what he's saying Mm -hmm. is he's saying what he's going to sell it at in April. Mm -hmm. And the other traders think the price in April will be higher. Um, Yeah. So then they, so then Winthrop, so Ackroyd and Eddie Murphy agreed to buy lots and lots of OJ from them at 142 a pound. Yeah. So that's, I guess what that means. Yep. I'm going to have to watch it again with this new knowledge. See if I can break the code. (laughs) Like I understand the ideas of commodities trading and stuff like that, but I never thought of it as like, because whenever they're doing the pork bellies earlier in the movie, it's at like $65. And I would assume that that wouldn't be $65 a pound for essentially slabs of bacon. But that could be like whatever packaging system pork uses. So it's like sixty, you know, five dollars per, you know, bushel or whatever of pork belly stack of pork belly. See, like, so I understood. I understand everything at the beginning. It's just that one scene I never got. Uh, oh, because they were doing instant trades too. Hmm. Oh, that could be part of it too. The Dukes were buying at instant trades, whereas Winthrop and Valentine were doing future trades. Yep, I'm going to have to do some research. I'm very more curious about this now. I must unlock the code at the end of this movie. But I still love, I love, like, even without understanding it, I love the way that scene is done. Like, it's a very well done scene. Like, I also like the way, like, Eddie Murphy is just in there and everybody's going crazy around him and he's just, like, looking at people and going, bye, bye. And he'll just point at people (laughs) and then he's telling him, you know, he'll buy it at that. And he's just, bye. He's just so like nonchalant about the way he does it when everyone else mm-hmm. is going absolutely insane around him. Right. Hmm. Yep. I'm going to have to look at it. Plus, I love the scene leading up to it, too. Whenever they're like walking from the taxi, like to the, tr- the mm-hmm. trading pits, and he's just talking about what they're going into. I just I love that scene. Like when he's like Super Bowl, they know nothing about pressure. This is killer be killed. Like. Just making it sound way more serious than it actually is. And then you go into it and it is bonkers and everything like that. But I also, just in case nobody knows this, Randolph and Mortimer Duke, this isn't the only movie they're in. They do make an appearance in the movie Coming to America. So when Arsenio Hall's character wires uh, James Earl Jones for money, and they send him like a million dollars or two million dollars, whatever it is. And he fixes up the apartment. And Eddie Murphy's all upset that he fixed up the apartment because they were supposed to be poor. So he takes the extra money and puts it in a, Mc, a McDowell's bag. And he hands it to the homeless people. The homeless people are Randolph and Mortimer Duke because they are poor. Hmm. Yeah. And he hands them the money. And that's when he goes, that's when he hands it to Mortimer. Mortimer goes, Randolph, Randolph. And he shows him the money and he goes, we're back. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, I I would not have known that. So that's a little tidbit of information, just in case you didn't know, because apparently people haven't seen this movie and I still don't understand that. So if you've seen Coming to America and you didn't understand that scene, that is a direct reference to this, the end of this movie. Nice. See, I'm trying to also think about like, what else could we talk about in spoilers? Uh, because I just realized we've really only talked about like a handful of things uh, in the whole spoiler section of this. Like I, I really, I just, I really do love the scenes of like Dan Aykroyd's descent into madness. 
from being poor and like how it just slowly we're like wears away at him. Like when he's at that pawn shop and he's trying to get money for his watch and he just does that whole spiel about how important that watch is. And the pawn dealer goes in Philly, it's worth 50. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And that scene when he like holds the gun to his head and like, it just doesn't go off and then he throws it away and it goes off. <laughs> yeah. And then there the, also the scene essentially whenever he's like starting to get sick and Ophelia has a client come over and he's like, no, no, you have work to do. Let me get out of here. I just like how that was the transit. Like that was one of the turning points for him in the movie, because originally when he first meets her and find out what she does, the idea that she's a sex worker is just utterly demeaning to him. Mm-hmm. And then he's like slowly started to realize how the actual world works. And he's like, no, no, you've got to do your job. I'm just in your way. Like, I, cause I just love how like prim and proper everything is for him at the beginning. Like essentially mm-hmm. what is the sex scene between him and his fiance at the beginning of the movie is like the most unerotic thing ever. Like that was a showgirls level unsexiness sex scene. <laughs> but like, I just love it that she's like, she's turned on because he's like, Oh, he stood up to a robber. When all he did was just scream endlessly for police when a guy's trying to hand him his briefcase, which also really just goes to show how kind of sad things are that shit like that still happens today. Yeah. You know, like that's that's like the exact same type of thing you would see nowadays on a cell phone camera of just some random white person just accusing a black person of doing a crime for no fucking reason. It's the same type of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's that scene. But then she's like, oh, you stood up to that thief. You're so brave and tough. And she's like, I have to have you now. And then they're just like <laughs> undressing slowly and like ever so gently folding their clothes. And it's just like the <laughs> most boring thing ever. Like it is the wonder bread of sex scenes. And I just love that that was. That was the idea of that was them in the throes of passion. And I just love how throughout the movie, Dan Aykroyd like kind of sheds that aspect of his character. Yeah. And like the idea of being prim and proper or just being that stuck up and above everybody that that attitude gets you nowhere. I do like that part of his story arc that he realizes that that gets you nowhere and treating people like people and being decent towards other people like Ophelia is to him is actually how like a better way to get through life. Because if you have nothing, that's the only thing that you will have. Yeah. And that's just a nice message. All right. What do you guys talk about this movie now? <laughs> Go ahead, Justin. Um, well, you guys pretty much covered, I mean, pretty much covered, uh, quite a bit of it. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, just as far as, um, just other scenes that, that that I enjoyed um I did like uh, um a lot of the scenes with Dan Aykroyd and um Jamie Lee Curtis I just really liked that whole dynamic and how him seeing a different side of that him seeing someone who had 
who had been playing the game on the streets and she had made all this money for herself and had earned uh, what she had and everything like that. And so him kind of coming from this place of privilege and kind of the uh, living the higher up life and kind of seeing that someone can have the can be on the streets and have the same kind of work ethic and everything like that and just not have the same things that you have but still has a good heart a good mindset and is trying to better themselves so I think that was very good for that uh, for Dan Aykroyd's character arc to see someone um in that situation. And I like what you were kind of saying a little bit earlier about Eddie Murphy too, because I definitely noticed all those things, how he would stop himself from saying, you know, motherfucker or whatever the phrase was, because he didn't want to seem like he didn't deserve to be there. Or like when they were having the Christmas party and he was doing paperwork or, you know, just that feeling of always, thinking that you need to be proven yourself or you've got to work harder because I'm black and I'm in this position. I got to work harder and everything like that. And then him just, or whenever they try to throw, when, um, one of the, those, the, the execs tried to leave their money clip, um, thinking that he would steal the money, but he returned it to him and everything like that. So all of that, you know, trying to, prove himself in that arena all of that did come across but of course Eddie Murphy is charismatic and funny and he does his own and of course he just has a way with the camera and a way of delivering lines and he has such a unique brand of comedy that you go with it but yeah all those little nuanced things were there and I really do think that that also is a big reason why I think this movie kind of is successful and stands as one of those uh, memorable comedies was because it did have a lot of those socioeconomic things in there and about and it had some of those racial things in there and stuff like that. So I, it didn't shy away from those things. So I think that that was another great thing about this movie is that it didn't shy away from those concepts. And yeah, it is sad that you see a lot of those different things today. Um, another thing that this got me thinking about, and I don't know, and I'm not saying that that necessarily that this was the intent of the movie or anything like that. But another thing it got me thinking about is, you know, just especially with the, uh, the, the me too movement and you find out about all these actresses and stuff like that and how they're, you know, these, you know, they talk about some of their experiences with some of these directors and, you know, I want you to do this topless scene. I want you to do this nude scene, this, this, that, and the other. And, you know, you hear, you hear that stuff. And I don't know if it's just me or not, but now when I go back and watch some of these movies and I just see like all of these topless scenes and stuff like that it now I start to question it was that really necessary did that help this movie at all 
rather than just to give us like and in this movie especially and I get that it was an R-rated movie this is an adult comedy but there was a lot of breast in this movie and just thinking about it I didn't really see the point of any of it like and, and then and sometimes it was just kind of like why like the scene with Jamie Lee Curtis where she's talking to dad Aykroyd they had just met he's walking in here for the first time she's kind of giving him the whole spiel about what she is and everything like that and she just throws her top off before she closes the door and goes okay you're sleeping over there and she shuts the door and I was kind of like well was that did that (laughs) what did that add to the scene you know and so now I'm always just conscious of that. Like I just think about, and I'm not saying that that's what happened here or that these directors and people were salivating watching these women. I'm not necessarily saying that, but when you do see that in a movie like this, it does make you wonder why was it in this? Like, why did that, why did any of those scenes need to exist? Could the girl have just been dancing wild and not had her chest out and would have had the same effect? You know, did did Jamie Lee Curtis need to do that? Did she need to get naked and hug Dan Aykroyd because he was sick? I, you know, there, there are just things now that when I look at them and it's funny because I guess that just shows how much I've changed because back then, you know, growing up and watching all these movies and kind of like Sterling said, it's the wild, wild west. And when you would see an actress do topless or something like that, you know, it used to be a thing like, Oh man, this, you know, that would be something me and the guys would talk about. Oh yeah. You got to see that movie because so-and-so goes topless. And now I just have such a different outlook on all of that. And so this just kind of gave me those feelings because I failed to see the point in some of those scenes. But anyway, just thought I'd, like to hear some of your thoughts on that i i have actually tried to go back and find an example or anything of whether or not like jamie lee curtis had has spoken about anything like that with this movie or even earlier movies because i believe she's also topless in halloween or halloween 2 at one point um i do think though that and then there is also the dance scene in 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 total uh in true lies but that was also done more like comedic with it too i mean i'm just i have gone back to look and see if i can if i was able to find anything about her saying anything like you know like at the time i did it but like i wish i hadn't or anything like that and i haven't been able to find anything about that and that's not to say that she doesn't feel that way i was just i was curious to see if she's ever spoken about it and haven't been able to find anything about it. Um, well, that's good. I mean, at least, or at least, you know, maybe there's nothing out there like that. Maybe it wasn't like that. Maybe she just saw it as I'm doing my, I'm doing a job. I agreed to this. I'm doing a job, which is fine. And I'm not saying that now, every time I see a woman topless or something like that, that it's going to, bother me in this way or that it's going to make me think but it, it, but I sure am conscious of it now you know and I guess well, I just 
wondered if I'm the only one. Especially like you, <laughs> you said, know? though, in the 80s, though, when it's just like a scene and it's just like, oh, she's just standing in the mirror. Let's get topless. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not even a sex scene or anything like that where or it's not even like the stereotypical teenage comedy thing where like the woman's getting undressed and the guy's looking at her through a window or something like where she doesn't know. Like, no, she's yeah. just fully standing there just going, I'm getting undressed while this guy watches just for him to see me naked. So I can be like, no. <laughs> and you're like, but why? Why would you have that? Yeah. Or the like the lady dancing at the party. Yeah. Like the the woman in the bed is at least slightly more understanding because yes. she is trying to sleep with Billy Ray. Yes. But like the woman at the party who's just like, hey. I'm dancing. I'm going to take off my jacket because I'm topless. (laughs) Yeah, it was just like, I was kind of like, okay, was that? That's that cocaine party, man. I guess so. I guess so. Maybe I just haven't done any cocaine parties, so I just don't know how it gets. Maybe perhaps that's that's my problem. That's the issue with you being all fucking straight edge and shit. I guess so. (laughs) I guess so. I mean, and no, I, I, I totally I get what, what you're saying, though, because there are a lot of women that do scenes like that or in the past and stuff like that. And then have talked about how they regretted them now and stuff like that. And especially whenever they're like new to movies and stuff like that. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis had been around for a while at this point. You know, she'd actually even led some movies. So one would hope that at that point, having been a lead actress and been a big name actress and stuff like that at that point you would hope she wouldn't have been pressured into something like that if she wasn't okay with it um i mean it's also really kind of hard to know the mentalities of some of this stuff without them saying stuff now because it was 1983 yeah exactly i mean i think it it, at least and i know that it it's take it with a grain of salt but that's kind of the way shit was in the early eighties when it came, especially comedies and stuff like that. If they were going to be rated R, they were going to have some nakedness in them. You know, yeah. they would, they would put everything in it. They're like, well, if we're going to say fucking get a rated R, we're going to have some naked women. And you know, some actresses were probably okay or, you know, okay with that because they just knew what it was. You know what I mean? They knew the type of movie they were making and they were okay with it. And I don't mean to say that in a way that, would mean that all of them were because I guarantee the situation in which you were describing Justin probably happened way more than it didn't happen, especially back then. Mm. Cause it happens probably, it happens way more now than we're, than most people are willing to admit. And it's now. So, and that's with the change in mentalities. So back then it was infinitely worse and you just know it. You know what I mean? Like, you know it was. And it's one of the situations you hope it wasn't the case in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with somebody like just, Jamie Lee Curtis. And yeah. Not to mean that somebody it's like that. Not and also not to say that, well, I hope it doesn't happen to Jamie Lee Curtis, but it was okay for somebody else. No, I'm just saying that if at this point, if it was something like that, I mean I would hope that Jamie Lee Curtis would have come out and said something about it at this point because of her status and how that could help out people that were affected negatively also that don't have the power of the voice she has. Yeah. 
And I mean, and I agree because like I, I always wonder that too with, you know, any kind of either sex scenes or nude scenes or whatever it is. It's like, is that something they were okay with or was it something that they were just kind of made to do, you know? And I haven't really heard of Jamie Lee Curtis saying much. I mean, I know that there was something a couple of years ago with um, Seth MacFarlane doing some kind of like parody song about women who do um, like nude scenes or something. And she just kind of made a very vague comment about saying something like, I didn't like doing it, but I did what, you know, I, I did what they asked me to do for the part. And mostly it was men who asked me to do it. But it was a very vague like, that's kind of all she said about it from what I recall. But that, I mean, she said something, but it wasn't like a, you know, this person, I'm calling out this person for this. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't specific. She was just kind of vague and at least made it known. Like, you know, it's not something I enjoyed doing, but I, I needed to do it for the part. But that's kind of the only thing I've heard her ever say about it or heard of her ever saying about it. Mm, okay. Okay. So see, so there has been just a lit. So she has given, I guess, a little bit of an opinion on it. And yeah, and I'm not saying that, and I I don't want this to be misconstrued. I'm not saying that I'm going to boycott this movie or (laughs) any movie that has nude scenes and sex scenes. I'm going to be like, well, was this necessary or not? And like rate them all or anything. I'm not really (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know what the conclusion of it is. It's just that I definitely more am more conscious of it. Of it. Yeah. yeah. Just because you hear after hearing all those stories and everything like that. So now when I go back and watch movies like this, I just notice things that I would never notice before. Just like that scene with Dan Aykroyd and his wife, she's down. She's strips down to bra and panties. He doesn't take anything off. You know, now I notice these things. And I just Mm -hmm. never used to notice them. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, now I see it. I just, I just see it everywhere. Just kind of this dominance that, you know, you just see that now you just see like, that is perfectly acceptable for them to do. But none of the men in this movie had to come close to doing anything like that. And it's just like, now you can't help but see it. Just given everything that's happened, you know, and I don't know. I I mean, I, like I said, this is not a boycott of this movie or to say this movie is an offender of I'm not saying really any of that, except that just, uh, you know, I don't know if it's guilty of any of the, anything or not, but I sure am starting to notice that just a little bit more thought it was worth saying. And see, and I was and wrong, too. I thought she had gone topless in one of the Halloween movies, but I was wrong on that. So, Oh, she didn't for either of them or any of the ones she was in? Yeah, no, she hadn't. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was, I just, I was not, I was wrong. I, I could have sworn she had, but no, apparently it was, this was the first movie she had done it in. So that would also mean that her quote about with what you were talking about, uh, Heather would have been actually in reference to this movie. I want to say there was a couple of other movies, like some movie called love letters or something like that, that she had to do it in. I don't know if that was before or after this movie, but um, I think that was another movie where they had her do that. Um, So I I did find, I did find the actual thing and she's Mm -hmm. like her uh, quote or her 
blog post that she had posted in response to that the the song you were talking about. And she says, I am an actress who has bared her breasts in films to satisfy the requirements of the role I was asked to do, lucky to do for, in my case, those films were significant in my career. I didn't like doing it. I didn't ask if I could do, I didn't ask if I could do them topless. I did what was asked of me for the part I was playing, mostly asked by men. So it actually does kind of go into what, and I would say that she is more or less implying that the situation in which you were saying, Justin, seems like it was more, you know, probably accurate and, you know, in, uh, in your assessment of what the situation probably was. Okay. Yeah. I see. But it looks like that, um, in 1983, so trading places came out in 1983 and so did that love letters movie. So it really could have been either one. Honestly, I don't know if she did any after that. I just saw some article about how she was topless in love letters as well. And that came out the same year. Either way though, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, and I think um, just to kind of segue off of this and just something that um, just a a little bit more on the whole reason that I really liked Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie is because, I mean, you're right that, you know, she hadn't done anything comedy wise before this. And yeah, I mean, she's like the horror queen of the world. Like she's done all these scary movies and all of these things. And she hadn't done funny, but it was almost like this seamless transition. Like she was seamlessly just funny. Like she didn't have to try. It wasn't something where, you know, it was, it wasn't like a forced thing where you feel like she was just, you know, naturally funny. And I think in, in most comedies that I've seen or most movies where she has funny parts, it's natural. And I just think that they're like, there's just something to be said for the acting in this too, like how they can transition from their normal to their not normal at that time. Like, um, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. I mean, like if you had only seen her in like the Halloween movies before this, and then you see her in this and you're just like, man, she is versatile, you know? And the same thing with Eddie Murphy too, because something I really liked too, because I agree with you, Sterling about Dan Aykroyd's character transition and just kind of his growth throughout the movie, but also the same with Eddie Murphy, because, he I feel like I feel like he played very he played the part of, you know, being very um I don't know what the word is. I mean, just very intentional, it seemed like when he was, you know, doing the part of, you know, the the businessman and the the rich guy thing. You know, he he wasn't like pompous, he wasn't pious, he wasn't any of that. He was just like you were saying, like he was just trying to do what he needed to do to prove himself. And you just kind of, I just, I I just appreciated that because you see that there are scenes where he's just like, all right, I I'm being serious right now because I just like, you know, this is a big deal. Like what I'm doing right now and who I am right now, it's a big deal. And you just see that transition of like, man, I have this opportunity to be something great. And I have this opportunity to prove myself. And it just seemed like his character in the movie took it seriously. And I just liked those moments when you can see that he is doing that where he's trying to just take this situation and opportunity seriously. And I just thought that was a really also seamless kind of transition because 
I mean, all you, all I had seen him and really, or mostly would have seen him in his comedies. And this kind of shows a little bit more of, he can do, he can do both. I mean, we know that now, obviously with other movies he's had, but, um, you know, at the time, (laughs) I think like we were saying, well, this was his second or third movie, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just nice to kind of see how he balanced out the comedy part, but also the serious part of it. So I think that his transition was good too, but it was more um, subtle, but I liked it because you could just see that he was, you know, taking it in and, and trying to be like a responsible person almost in a sense. So I thought that he did a really good job with that. And then um, I do also, as far as spoilers go, I do like how this movie ended I think it was a good ending and and Dan Aykroyd had completely shed himself of those things and those judgments and preconceived notions about certain types of people by the end completely because he chose to be with Jamie Lee Curtis's character and didn't care at all about who she was and what she did for a job. He was just like, no, I want to be with you, you know, and it was just kind of a nice seeing that like he had shed that and then like him and Eddie Murphy are these, these friends and they're doing vacation together and all these things. Like you just see, they both completely have a very different perspective on their worlds um, at the end of this movie. And it's a happy ending. So who doesn't like that? But yeah, so I just, I really liked the way that this movie ended as well. Yeah, I can agree with that. I did like the ending. At the, I liked that at the end with them at the vacation resort and, uh, their friends now and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Dan Aykroyd on the boat. I thought that that was a good ending. I liked it. That was that that was good. And I also liked how the last scene I'll talk about that I liked too was just when Eddie Murphy found out uh, what the um, what the execs were really up to, and just him hearing them say all of that and then just the realization that and just him being the one to find out and having that realization and how he immediately started going after Dan Aykroyd to try to tell him, look, man, we're both pawns in this game. So I just liked how that all turned out, how they feel, how they found out. Then the team up, all of that was solid execution and you're right it all made for a solid ending too yeah one of my favorite scenes in this movie is at the beginning of the movie when dan Aykroyd's character sets the buying price for pork bellies based on his like market projections and all this other stuff and eddie murphy's character sets the selling price for pork bellies you know when he's learning everything and he's doing it based on his just logic of how people are mm-hmm. and how both of them were accurate. But I like how that kind of showed their personalities with how they got to those conclusions. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was good. Dan Aykroyd's character was Harvard at Harvard educated and all this other stuff. And he, you know, market projections and all this other shit. And, you know, Eddie Murphy's character is basing it on, well, it's Christmas time. People want to have as much money as they can to buy their kids toys or their wife won't fuck them. So they're panicking right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, I just liked how they were both. It it shows that people can come up with the right answer 
just kind of depending on like what you know and how you apply it to what's going on, you know? Yeah. Like street smarts can be just as good as like book smarts kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just depending on the situation, you know, and I just really liked that aspect of it all. Like I liked how it showed that was the difference between them while yes, Mm -hmm. Dan Aykroyd's character was educated and rich and all this other stuff that didn't necessarily mean he was better than the, the Valentine, you know, he just had the opportunities and all this other stuff when other people could do their, his job if given the chance. And I'm Mm -hmm. not also saying that, you know, Valentine's character would have been able to do everything he could because yes, there will be aspects of things. Of course, that Dan Aykroyd's character would know that uh, Eddie Murphy's wouldn't have, but I just like the fact that, you know, it just shows that, you know, just because of your life circumstance or something doesn't necessarily define or limit you if you do get opportunities. And for sure, I also love the fact that no matter what Valentine did, even when the Dukes made money because of Valentine, and they saved a ton of money because of him and all this other stuff. They still were like, no, but he's a poor black person. We can't keep him. And they said that yeah. in way less eloquent terms than I just did. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. also going on to my next point. The guy that played Mortimer Duke, the one with the mustache, he actually came out of a 13 year hiatus to make this movie. And I had read a thing where he actually, because he was like a more classically trained actor and all this other stuff, he hated the idea of cursing on film. And his character mm-hmm. does say fuck a couple of times. And also, uh, he does say the N word at one point. And apparently, after every scene they filmed of stuff like that, he went around to all the cast and crew that was there when he said it and apologized to them. Oh, that's nice. And <laughs> unnecessary, like, but nice. And then, like, apparently, that scene at the yeah. end when his brother's having a heart attack and they're like, Mortimer, your brother. And he goes, fuck him. Apparently, he agreed to only film that scene once. He was like, it will not be filmed again. So that was the Aww. one take they filmed. Because yeah, wow, things he, have changed. Because he did, he just hated the idea of cursing like that. But did uh, uh, he understood what it was for the role and all this other stuff and for the story? But yeah, I just I think that's a very interesting thing because I have said fuck infinitely more times than he has in this movie in this episode of the podcast alone, and I feel zero <laughs> guilt about it whatsoever. <laughs> I do also like the um kind of that satisfaction moment of when Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd are like, Oh yeah, we uh, we're rich now kind of thing. And, and they're kind of like their, their um, snap back to them of like, Oh, you know, I made a bet and I lost. So I owe you a dollar, like just really throwing in their face that they know exactly what they did. It was just very well done. It was very satisfying to see them do it that way. I really liked that. Yeah. And I, 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 one of my favorite lines in this film was when they were talking about like after Eddie Murphy had saved Dan Aykroyd and they were back at Dan Aykroyd's house and he's like cleaning out the shotgun and he's got like that hunting safari vest with like a hundred shotgun shells on it. And he's like, you know, you can't just go around and like blowing up their kneecaps. That's like assault with a deadly weapon. And he was like, you know, and he's like, well, what do you suggest? And he's like, well, it seems to be the, the, like the worst way to hurt a rich person is to make them poor. And yeah. And then uh, <laughs> Coleman is like, 
you know, talking about how like, yeah, you didn't seem to like it, did you, sir? And <laughs> yep. Like that was the realization of like how they were really gonna hit the Dukes was to make yeah. them poor. And I loved the way the Dukes acted when they were poor, like whenever they did lose everything. Like they could do it to someone else and it's no big deal. It was a dollar bet to them. But then when somebody does it to them, it's the end of the world. And <laughs> yeah, yep. and, and that's how it is for people like that, that they can destroy anybody else's life. They can fire anybody, you know, they can do this and that and, you know, cost other people their money and it's no big deal. But if it happens to them, it's the worst thing in the existence of humanity. Whereas other people, when you're, you're not used to having that much and stuff like that. And, you know, you do become in a way a lot more resilient in some cases like that. Cause when you do lose whatever little you do have, you know, you kind of just take it as another stride and you, you know, you figure out a way to persevere or whatever. Like that's way more likely to happen in those circumstances than the ones that have just known nothing but money and all this other stuff and just have zero regard for, for humanity whatsoever. And it's, it's funny because they were doing it to them as a big social experiment and, and in turn also not learning what the experiment should have taught them anyway. Mm-hmm. This movie's got layers. <laughs> it does. I mean, like Justin said, the socioeconomic aspects of this movie were 100% accurate in 1983 and sadly 100% accurate today in 2020. Yeah. Sadly. I mean, same with the racial tones in this movie. It, as much as everybody likes to say there's like a lot of progress and all this other stuff, in a lot of ways, so much of this movie is still accurate today. I mean, the outlook on like women and their role and in stuff like that in a lot of ways is still relevant today. Uh, the stigmatization of sex workers is still valid today. The, you know, the racial undertones about, you know, an innocent situation with a black man becomes completely overblown and, you know, detrimental for him in an innocent way. And the, you know, it's one of those things where they were like, Nope, this is all going to stick. Like, this is what it's going to be. You know, he had, he was completely subjugated to the system and resigned to what was going to happen to him. Uh, the socioeconomic tones about, you know, the haves and the have nots and their mentalities towards the people under them and everything like that. Like all of those are still 100% relevant today. And for this movie, it's good because you get to see those aspects and you get to like it, it, it makes those elements still click and work. It, it, it helps the movie not feel dated in some respects. But then at the same time, when you realize that movie's damn near 40 years old and it's still relevant in a lot of ways now, is incredibly sad, too, for society. Good for the movie, bad for society. So Agreed. You guys have any more thoughts about trading places? Nope. No, sir. I will say this. As far as all the movies, like on Essentials list, this is our highest rated one yet. Yep, that's true. You mean out of our, just out of our scores, right? Out of our scores, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, this movie, I mean, it's it's a comedy. So, you know, it's like Metacritic, it's in the 60s. I think I think maybe it's like 60s, 70s or something like that on Rotten Tomatoes. It's comedies. Those are so hit or miss with critics and all kinds of stuff like that. 
But I was just talking about between us. So far, this is the most liked movie between us three of the ones we've done so far. Yep. Good pick. And I won't I won't go into the the box office or something like this because you know the budget's gonna be low. You know it you know it made money. So that part of it isn't gonna be crazy. But I, I do know the scores on this now. Uh Metacritic was a sixty six. Uh and then the tomato meter it is an eighty seven. And the audience score is an eighty four on this. Okay. So yeah, like I said, it was a six oh I'm sorry, it was a sixty nine on Rotten or on Metacritic. And it's a seven point five out of ten on IMDb. So a lot of the scores are kind of right there with where we were. Yeah. Cool. So it's just crazy that yeah, forty years later it's still kind of getting the same stuff. And we probably still had more negative thoughts about it than they did about so the the aspects we had negative thoughts on weren't the same ones they would have had back then. Yeah. It really is crazy how times at times they be a changing. Mm-hmm. Yet how they still stay the same. So on that note, guys, thank you for listening to this episode of the Simulslayers podcast. Check us out at www.simulslayers.com. Check us out on Facebook at Simulslayers podcast, Twitter and Instagram. We are cinema underscore slayers. We've got more of these coming your way. We will be doing an episode on Tenet. So if you have seen that, uh, make sure to take a listen to our episode on that. And other than that, guys, just remember, according to Justin, Moon Knight is the best picture winner. Dude, the Clippers lost. Oh, I know. I actually put something on Facebook while we were recording about that. Crazy.